Welcome to the One Haas Alumni Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Lee. And today, as part of our AAPI Celebration Month, we welcome Celeste Fayuwaso. Celeste is a program manager, senior program manager, just recently promoted at Google, which we'll learn more about. And you are also a Pacific Islander. That's your background, right? Yes. Mixed race. I am also identify as Mexican American, but yes, also Pacific Islander, Polynesian. <laughs> Perfect. Let's, you know, let's just dive right into that. Uh, I'd love to hear your origin story, hear about your family, your origins, and where you're from. Yeah. I'll start with my parents first because that's really critical to my upbringing. So, my dad is Samoan and he grew up in American Samoa and then came to the mainland US for college. And my mom, she grew up in Compton, raised by a single mother and her grandmother. And so both my parents had humble beginnings and they really wanted a better future for their family. So they prioritized education. They both thought education was key for our success and having better opportunities than they had. Up until I was five, I lived in La Habra, California, in a two-bedroom condo with my parents. And we had a family of five. My younger brother was just a baby, and he was, like, staying with my parents in their room. And then me and my older brother, who, he's nine years older, so a big age gap. Wow. So he's, yeah, so he was, like, a, just starting high school, and I was, like, just starting kindergarten and we were sharing a room (laughs) that was like my life until I was five but obviously our family was getting bigger in a two-bedroom condo like isn't going to work for us and then when my parents were looking for a house they really looked for a good neighborhood that had a great school district so but they could have gotten a bigger house but what they decided is that we don't really care about like the size of our house. We want to make sure that our kids are in one of the best school districts in the state. So we moved to Diamond Bar. They have like one of the best public schools in the state. And that really like opened the doors for me and my siblings to have like great education. I actually had a speech impediment as a child. And it was very frustrating because I would talk and people couldn't understand me, but I was very talkative. <laughs> and so <it> was, <laughs> I'd get frustrated when people asked me, like, what are you saying? Like, I don't understand. So I had to take speech classes and worked really hard to get over my speech impediment because I wanted people to understand me. And I think that helped me to become determined and to work hard and like put my mind on something that I want. On top of that, my older brother, again, nine years older than me, I thought I idolized my brother. He's super smart. And I felt like he did great on whatever he did in school. And so as a middle child, I didn't want to feel like left behind. I felt like a little bit in the shadow. So I strived to do well. Like I loved my brother, but also was competitive. Like, okay, I want to like make sure I'm also doing well in school. I want to like do the same sports. And that really helped me to strive for the best and push myself academically. And so I think like a combination of my parents being really focused on education, having an old brother that was a role model and inspired me to do better. And then also like coming over my speech impediment all made me like very focused on school and a determined individual. I see. What's your uh, dad's background? Can you share more about that? Like what was his family like? And then what inspired him to come to mainland U.S.? Yeah, I think the Samoan culture is really about like communal 
And it's not about an individual and it's about like doing your role and your part and your family. So I think my dad's family also valued education. Like my paternal grandfather, like went to college, got a master's and like knew the value of education. So instilled that within his kids. And then also just like a hard work ethic. I think in like Samoan culture, Polynesian culture, again, it's like not about the individual. It's about the community and like it's not about you. It's like, what is best for the family? Like, what's your role? What's your responsibility? So it's not, it's kind of putting yourself last and putting others first. And so like my family is like super giving and just shows up for you and like helps you out and like takes care of you. So like my dad's a very like giving, caring, thoughtful person and saw like the value in education. So for him, he wanted to go to college to get off the island And a lot of people on the island, like, stay on the island. And, like, the only ways out really are, like, you leave to go to college or you, like, join the military. Mm. I think people in Samoa, American Samoa, are, like, most represented per capita in the military. It's a small island, but, like, so many people join the military to get out and have a better opportunity that they are overrepresented in the military when you just look at per capita numbers. Right. What did your dad come here to study? He came here to study computer science. Oh, nice. He actually like also wanted to play football and have dreams of going to the NFL, but unfortunately uh, had like really bad knee injuries because of football, but like was really smart, did computer science. He has a really like inspiring story. He like graduated college, but then it was really hard for him to find a job, even though he had like computer science and he graduated in the 80s so like you know computer science is like relevant it's like that's the star of like technology really advancing and so you would think I'm still budding yeah yeah so you would think that he would like have all these great opportunities and maybe he would work at like microsoft at the very beginning or something like that but that wasn't the case he actually like had a hard time and couldn't find a job even for his degree or for being a college graduate like he had to work very like labor intensive jobs like at a oil refinery or like cleaning up airplanes or like unpacking luggage. So he did a lot of like manual work. And I think he thought like very frustrated that he like worked so hard and like had a degree, but didn't have anything to show for it. But um, it was kind of like a freak accident. He was working at Texaco in an oil refinery and there was an explosion where like he could have died. Like he literally was like blown like a hundred feet across the air And you could feel the explosion like miles away in Southern California. Wow. And so because of that, he had to work within the office and not in like a labor job. Mm. He became like employee of the month and got to go to this conference with all the other like leads of Texaco and other employees of the month. And so when he was there, that my mom was at the table and she was just sitting there like chit-chatting with whoever's near her and the person that came to her was just asking her like hey like how are you liking Texaco do you work here and she was like oh I don't work here my husband works here and my mom she really likes to like put her heart on the table and so she told this person actually like I'm not happy with Texaco like my husband like almost died he has a computer science degree like I don't feel like he's getting the opportunities that he should 
be getting. Like, I wish they could do better by him. And turns out, like, a few weeks later, I don't know how much time, but the person that she was talking to, she became, like, the head of that plant. And so, like, knew my dad from, like, the very beginning of his time there and, like, enabled and opened doors for my dad to, like, get into the computer science field within Texaco. Wow. That was really the jumpstart of his career because from then he was able to like get the experience and then transfer different jobs throughout the industry and then um, finally end up at Caltech where he is the lead architect within their information system. He uh, actually reports to the CIO of Caltech now. So it's like kind of really amazing like (laughs) story (laughs) of like going on the island, going to college, thinking that you're going to like work into like a corporate job and then having to do like manual jobs for years and not thinking that you'll ever get to do what you wanted to do. And now he's doing really great and works at Caltech. That's amazing. Thank you for sharing that. That reminds us all with partners that we should be the strongest ally. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. (laughs) That's amazing. That's amazing. Your mother did that. That's really cool. I was asking these questions because I'm trying to find where the inspiration for you came from to go to MIT to study mechanical engineering. Growing up in Diamond Bar in Southern California, like where did this inspiration come from to go to mechanical engineering? I really liked math and science as a child. And when I was a child, I'd also like, my dad had a lot of tools and I found out like how to use a screwdriver maybe when I was like six or something. And once I found that out, I was really curious on how things worked. And so I started to like, take things apart in my house like I got like a phone and I like take it apart or I got like a radio and take it apart and I think at first it was like cute but then my mom was like if you're gonna take something apart like put it back together and I'm like (laughs) oh I don't know how to put it back together I just took it apart because I wanted to see like what's all in a phone and like started destroying things so she's like okay like stop doing that do not take things apart but it was very clear that I was like very curious I asked questions and like well how do things work why and just looking for answers and science like how the world around me works so i felt that like at a very young age like even when i was in third grade i asked my parents if they could buy me a microscope or a telescope and got that so i was just very curious about how the world worked and at the same time my dad got that job at caltech when i was in third grade and he was telling me like hey you really like math and science and you're good at it caltech is like one of the best schools in the world for that, like, if you work hard, you could go to Caltech. And so like, since that moment, I was like, I do want to go to Caltech. I think that's like exactly what I want to do. want to study biology or science and figure it out. So that was really the driving force throughout my early life of wanting to like be a scientist and like go to Caltech and like do all this research. I actually did like a summer program at Caltech my junior year of high school. But unfortunately, I didn't get into Caltech. So that was a a bummer and big disappointment. But then, however, I got into MIT. So, Oh, what a shame. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I know. What what a shame. So that was obviously life-changing. I think at that point in my life, I thought I was going to, like, be born, like, live and die in California, like, in Southern California specifically. I was, like, going to never leave. Like, why would I ever do that? And then it was kind of crazy. It was like, oh, I got into MIT. I didn't plan for that. And also like I'm going to the East Coast in Boston. Like I never thought I would be living on the East Coast. All my family's in Southern California. Like 
literally all my mom's family is in Southern California. And like a lot of my dad's family is in Southern California. I have like no family in Boston. So it was <laughs> just like, wow, this is not how I pictured my life. And it really changed from there. That's amazing. Well, if it helps, I, I just finished Einstein's biography and apparently he didn't choose Caltech and when he had the opportunity. So I'm, nothing against Caltech. I love Caltech. <laughs> <laughs> so what'd you do after college? Actually, like just being really vulnerable, I didn't have a job after graduating college and that sucked <laughs> because I was so used to achieving in my life. Everything I wanted or strived for, I got. But after graduating MIT, like did not have a job lined up. And so that really hurt and felt like a failure because I didn't have a job. Fortunately, I could like come back to my parents' like house and like apply to jobs and like got one working as a process engineer at this company called Timeit, which creates like titanium products, like bar sheet for airplanes. Wow. So it was not my dream job, but was super grateful to just have a job. But it was definitely a humbling experience because I just assumed like, you know, I went to MIT, I'm smart, I'll, jobs will be like, I'll have my picking and like, it'll just be easy to get a job. So that's what I did like right after college is doing process engineering, but not a dream job and more so just like <laughs> try to get things done. So Celeste, what, what was your dream job? I don't think I had a dream job then. I didn't really know what I wanted to do as a senior in college. I just wanted to have like a good paying job. When I came back home, I had a lot of time to like reflect and answer those hard questions and realize I wanted to use like my strategic thinking and like math skills to have a positive impact in the world. And I was like, it would be great if I could just like help organizations with their social impact, like how to help organizations increase their social impact. There was a social consulting firm called FSG who did just that. It was like using your consulting strategic skills to drive social impact for organizations. And I was like, oh, wow, that's exactly what I said I wanted to do. I didn't know that there was a firm or organizations that exist like that that me apply <laughs> and was able to like get that job. And like that was my dream job. So like it's kind of crazy that I took the time to reflect and then it kind of manifest itself. I think that's how a lot of things work in life, honestly. There's this Chinese parable that I, I love about a man and a horse. This man, this farmer has his horse and like he loses his horse, right? Uh, a horse runs away and the village is like, oh, what bad luck, you know, your horse ran away. He's like, eh, I don't know. Good luck, bad luck, who knows? Mm. The next day, like the horse returns with like a wild flock of horses, you know, like five other horses. And the village is like, oh, wow, what good luck. He's like, ah, who knows? And the next day, like his son goes out and like to train the wild horses and like breaks his leg, you know, and it's like, oh, what bad luck. And it just goes on and on, right? And the whole purpose of the story is like, you know, everything that happens to us or happens for us, the story hasn't ended yet. So something that seems that like misfortune is, you know, the story still goes on. So we don't know where it's going to end. And I just love that idea. And I think that's exactly kind of what, what you experience as well, is that everything that you're doing or that you were doing will continue to build upon each other and ultimately get to where you want to be. I share that because a lot of people that I've spoken to on this podcast, even if they knew what they wanted to do, 
and they got it. There was also this sometimes, most of the time, this realization like, wait, this isn't what I wanted to do. (laughs) (laughs) And it's kind of like either way, it's still a work in progress, right? To figure out what it is that you, uh, what your calling is. And one more thing that I would share is one of my favorite talks from Ted is from um, Cal Newport. He talks about the passion myth, how people say like, oh, like, just follow your passions, do what you love. And as if we're all supposed to just know what we love or we're passionate about, right? And it's like, actually, it's the reverse. It's the inverse where you find out or you uncover what you're passionate about or what you love from years of just like grinding away at things. And then you get good at it and people give you recognition and you recognize yourself and then you become passionate and then you start to love that thing. It's not the other way around. Like nobody's born with something as much as we want. I think as a society, want to push that idea that like Mozart's a prodigy, like he was born to love music. It's like, no, his whole family were musicians. Like he started playing piano at like one. (laughs) So it's one of those things. I just think it's amazing that we go through this journey called life and get to discover these things. So I have to ask, you were kind of doing what you wanted to do. What brought you to Haas? Like I knew I wanted to go to business school for a long time. Like even in undergrad, I was planning to get my MBA. My dad got his MBA while I was in high school. And so I was like aware of like, what is an MBA? Why is that important? And knew I wanted to be a leader early on and like saw myself, I guess in undergrad, like I wouldn't say like, oh, I was like leading all these things. I think I was really involved in a lot of organizations, but I guess maybe since I was like a child felt like, yeah, I want to be like shaping the culture, making decisions, like planning the strategy of whatever I worked on or wherever I worked at and wanted to like have a team that I could lead. So it felt obvious that I would get an MBA. And then when I was applying to an MBA, I knew I wanted to go into tech. And so I thought that the MBA would open doors and let me transition into tech really actually just wanted to work at Google that like that was my (laughs) goal and dream and then also as like a woman of color that I knew that the cards are stacked against me and that if I get my MBA it creates a floor for my earning potential that nobody can take away so those were like my motivating factors to go to business school in terms of Haas actually like didn't do my due diligence on like what I was looking for. I was just like, I want to go to a top MBA program. I would love to come back to California. I want to go to tech. Berkeley's a great school. Everybody thinks of like tech in Berkeley. It's in the Bay Area. Like definitely want to like go there. But now that I've like went to Haas, I'm like, wow, this is definitely the perfect place for me. And I'm like so happy that I went here and like got rejected from some other schools that this was meant to be like maybe at the time I was like, dang, why didn't I get to go to X school? But then now I'm like, thank God I got rejected from that other school because like Haas is the perfect school for me because of the community. It's such a small group and such amazing, caring people that it's not like a utopia where you're like with people who believe in you. They're not sizing you up. They're actually interested in who you are as a person and what are your goals and want you to achieve your goals. 
And so I just felt like so much love and support at Haas. Well, like I was already a top performer, like achiever before Haas. I don't think I had like the self-confidence to really lean into that and accept it. But while it was at Haas, like just being around all that positivity gave me like self-confidence where I was like, well, I am that person. Like I should be proud. I am doing a lot of great things. And I guess leading into the principle of confidence without attitude that really like stood true to me because it like helped to build my confidence while still staying humble and grounded. I love that. And for our listeners, we do have to bring up, you know, for the class of 2020, you were awarded the Confidence Without Attitude Award <laughs> for your graduating class. So congrats on that. If you don't mind me asking, what are some of the challenges that you had overcome personally in terms of confidence? Because I guess what I'm trying to get at here to preface that is you had mentioned to me kind of before our call that for AAPI month, there isn't really full representation of the full spectrum of Asian American Pacific Islander, right? Because first off, that umbrella is just massive, right? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, it it leaves out a lot of different people and cultures. I don't know if that has anything to do with it, but can you share a little bit about some of the challenges that you face, you know, after graduating, building your career and whatnot? I mean, I think challenges that I face overall, being a woman of color, of like, Polynesian descent and of Latino, Latina descent is feeling that there's like a perception that I'm like working against a like negative perception at times. I'll just name a few instances, but there have been times when I was at MIT where somebody wrote an op-ed saying that they felt like the merit of MIT was going down because they were focusing on diversity and inclusion. Mm. Or like when I got into MIT, somebody said like, I only got into MIT because I was Puerto Rican, which I'm not Puerto Rican. And that's not the reason why I got into MIT. I think the trouble thing when you're a person of color and in the corporate world, when instances happen to you, it's you can't be like, that's for a fact because of like racism or like racial bias. You can't have that 100% proof point. But I feel like that's always lingering there. Like that could be an option or that's definitely something I'm working against right or it could just be like that person has poor social skills or like doesn't see me in a good light so i feel like challenges i have to like face is just having to demonstrate like excellence constantly and if there is like a mistake that i make that gives me a lot of anxiety but also just having to i guess be very conscientious of who I'm working with and what is the perception of like how I'm performing and making sure that I'm checking in with those people to be like crystal clear. Like, do you have feedback? Are there things that I should work on? And like being very methodical of like, okay, you have this feedback. I'm addressing it. I'm checking in with you. Is it good? Please let me know if it's going better or getting worse. And like, if they don't think I'm doing a good job, let me address those things immediately to control the narrative and like, make sure that people overall think that I'm like doing a good job. Right. And that's a necessary burden in many ways. And I say that because I think every person, every human being already has natural self-doubt and it's in some ways it's healthy, but you know, it's a natural thing, right? To have self-doubt and kind of question your place in the world. But to have, in addition to that, microaggressions, 
like those comments that are made to you, it's it, I can't imagine because those little things they they build up, right? They just kind of chip away at your confidence even more. Yeah, it really makes you question your place in the world and in the grand scheme of things, like it shouldn't shouldn't have to, right? You are just as excellent, if not more excellent than many of us. But it's it's just that mental game. And since you touched upon the the whole API and, and lack of representation during some of these months, what are some ways or suggestions you can make for companies to or organizations to build better culture to make room or just have that space to be more representative? So one, I don't think Google is like the poster child of this, but I do think there are things that are happening at Google that are great. And an example is like, while as a Google, I had the opportunity to have a professional career coach that Google paid for. And it was for specifically Latino people. And that's like equity, that they weren't giving the coach to everybody. It was specifically for underrepresented groups who weren't seen in leadership. So they gave them professionally coaching reserved for people at like an more senior level, like they had to be a manager plus in order to receive this coaching, but they offered it to whoever, as long as they um, identified as Latino or Latinx. So I feel like that is a good example of like giving resourcing, like it's not enough to get people through the door, that you need to equip them to excel and also change practices that enable them to excel. And so I felt like this was a good example of providing resourcing to help this individual achieve their career goals and navigate Google. And I felt it was super helpful for me because I had a coach for the last year and wanted to get promoted. And my coach really helped me to navigate that process, like helped me to figure out like what I should do, how to show up and very grateful for that experience. But also just in general for being like a good team, a functional team is psychological safety where people feel comfortable to express like what they feel like is going wrong, what's going well, where they feel like they need help, where things are struggling, where there are risks. And I feel like my manager does a great job of that. Like I love my manager. She's great. And what she instilled in our team was having an ombuds person. The job is to solicit feedback from the team on what's not going well and things that they maybe want the manager to do better, do differently. And so what I do is send out a pulse survey to our team every month and then every other month have a team meeting without my manager just to go over, here are the results, how are you feeling, what should we improve, what should we do differently? And it really gives them a safe space to say like, hey, this is what I'm struggling with. This is what I think we should do better without fearing like, oh, is my manager going to judge me or like feel defensive or like shut me down or like ostracize me because I didn't agree with them. And I'm able to like, get that feedback, anonymize it, and then share it with my manager and like brainstorm, like how can we address this feedback? And I feel like that has been great because so many times people are just like, well, I'll just like sit quietly with this pain or the struggle. I don't want to ruffle any feathers when in reality, they're probably not alone. And you have agency to give feedback and make change. I mean, 
I'm not saying all managers would be open to that feedback, but like assuming you have a good manager who's willing to listen to you and hear and be adaptive, that like there is agency to shape the culture and create the work environment that you want. So I think that's critical on a microcosm of your team of just creating a culture where people feel safe to give feedback and change things. Yeah. I definitely resonate with what you were saying earlier, providing support, companies providing support. It definitely reminds me of what you were saying, how Haas is just such a supportive environment, such a supportive community. And that's what really differentiates us from a lot of other business schools, right? Because you feel like you hear the word business, you think like competition, right? Competitiveness. It's almost like you can compete, but also collaborate at the same time, right? <laughs> it's, it's like the whole confidence without attitude. It feels like it's contradictory, but why is it? It's not mutually exclusive, right? So I just really like that idea. Is there anything that we haven't covered that you want to share with us? I do. So May is Asian and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. And I just don't want people to forget the Pacific Islander piece of it. Even though this month is supposed to celebrate both Asians and Pacific Islanders, oftentimes Pacific Islanders are overlooked, erased, and forgotten, even though this month is supposed to be dedicated for us. When I see commercials or initiatives in this month, I don't see Pacific Islanders. And that really makes me sad and frustrated because I'm thinking this month is supposed to be about us and highlight us. And I don't even see my people or myself. And I just don't want people to forget the PI whenever they say AAPI or Asian and Pacific Islander. What I want to make clear is that Pacific Islanders are not Asian. They're a different, separate demographic group. I also recognize Asian is a very big bucket, and it's an umbrella that also does disservice there. But I just want to make clear that Pacific Islanders are a different demographic group with a separate culture, a separate region. And when I'm talking about Pacific Islanders, I'm talking about Micronesians, such as people in Guam or the Marshall Islands. I'm talking about Melanesians, such as people in Fiji or the Solomon Islands. When I'm talking about Polynesians, I'm talking about people in Samoa, Tahiti, Tonga. And so that's who I'm talking about when I say Pacific Islanders. It's a very specific group of islands, and it's a very unique and different culture that is often not seen and erased in this month. And I just want to make it clear who we are so we're not forgotten. Thank you for sharing that. I actually didn't even know there was that separation that's really cool. Do you have any recommendations on like books or media that could help our listeners learn more about Pacific Islanders? So I do have some resources. On YouTube, there's this great video called Polynesian Wayfinders and the Cosmos space documentary. We'll share the link, but it's a 10-minute video just to really highlight some of the origins uh, Polynesian. And something that I'm extremely proud of is that my Polynesian ancestors were the best mariners in the world in human history of sailing the Pacific Islands way before Europe or Vikings like were doing what they were doing. Like I've heard the part where they've sailed is all the way from Mexico City or like south of Mexico to like 
to Alaska. Like that is the cover of distance that they were traveling like, in the Pacific Ocean. And did that just with the stars, the currents, looking where birds were landing. And they were covering the Pacific Ocean way before people from Europe and covering a lot more space or in the ocean than Vikings. So I think that's a factoid that is missed and often overlooked, but something that I'm really proud about and that this YouTube video highlights. And then something else I want to highlight is if you're ever in Hawaii, in Oahu, I recommend you visit the Polynesian Culture Center because that will expose you to the different Polynesian islands and their culture and what's like unique to them. And they also have a great luau at the end that it's like one of the best luau. So if you're looking for entertainment <laughs> and also culture, highly recommend going there. And I guess like something else, I feel like I'm giving like a little history lesson here, but like I think if people want to learn more about Pacific Islanders, just like even thinking about what you're doing when you're going to Hawaii. Hawaii was an independent country and had its own kingdom. It wasn't like a undeveloped island. Like it had its own kingdom and like had treaties with like 90 countries, had like the highest literacy rate in the world, but then was stolen by the U.S. And I think that's something that people totally forget about. But then they're always like, I love Hawaii. Like, so glad it's part of the U.S. Let me go visit there. But like, just take a second to like, maybe let, let's like understand the history of Hawaii and like know why people may be upset when you're visiting it. Yeah. And Samoa as well, right? Yeah. And Samoa, it's a different story. But yeah, like whenever you visit these islands for vacation, any type of island, like just think about like what's the history and context there. Yeah. No, thank you for sharing that. You're absolutely right. It's a U.S. state, but you know, it doesn't mean it doesn't have its own history <laughs> and and culture, which is starkly different for anybody who's been to Hawaii, right? Starkly different from the mainland. That's a good reminder. Well, thank you, Celeste, so much for coming on the podcast today and sharing your stories and about your family and and educating us a little bit about the Pacific Islands. Really glad to have you on, and thanks again. Thank you. Thanks again for tuning in to this episode of the One Haas Podcast. If you enjoyed our show today, please hit that subscribe or follow button on your favorite podcast player. We'd also really appreciate you giving us a five-star rating and review. If you're looking for more content, please check out our website at haas.fm. That's spelled H-A-A-S dot F-M. And there you can subscribe to our monthly newsletter and check out some of our other Berkeley Haas podcasts. One Haas Podcast is a production of the Haas School of Business and produced by University FM. Until next time, go Bears! <laughs>